This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Some of you may have seen the pictures posted were taken last week in Tampa, Florida at the LZTA meeting. It's a group of about two dozen. And it was quite the motley crew. If you didn't notice a few of the Rakasus, uh, there was nothing to particularly say it was a group of Buddhists, let alone a group of Buddhist teachers. No robes or sh shaved heads. They were ranging in age from their 30s till their 80s. I believe Pat George was the oldest person in attendance. Mm -hmm. And that kind of uh, diversity or heterogeneity of the group is really a big part of its point. Because it's meant to represent Zen teaching in all sorts of different guises than the traditional uh, monastic uh, form or our traditional picture of what a Zen master is supposed to look like. And basically, the group represents teachers who teach in non-residential and non-monastic settings, people who have not been ordained. There's always been some discussion about whether you want to keep the word lay in the name of the organization, so it seems to define the members in terms of what they're not rather than what they are. They're not ordained. But that very much represents the history of the group and how, at least in the strict Soto lineages, lay teacher was at one point an oxymoron. Ordination was a uh, necessary and inevitable part of the training path. And it was a radical idea that one wasn't being trained to run a temple uh, as part of one's 
training or preparation to be a teacher. Now the idea of lay teachers is much more widely accepted. I think the membership now uh, is over 160 people. So the vast majority of people who practice Zen in America are obviously lay students or householders, not monastics. But there remains a kind of um, uh, image or ideal that's, uh, you know, that in some circles say that, uh, well, the kind of thing you do in lay centers is good preparation for the day when you really get serious and decide to go to the monastery. But when we started this organization uh, 13 years ago, I drafted a line for the mission statement that said, we believe that Zen can be fully realized, expressed, and transmitted in the midst of late life. And that's the experiment we're doing here to see if that statement is true. As part of the diversity of teaching and practice, obviously everyone was contending with the effects of the pandemic and the enormous spread of uh, online teaching, which we've certainly experienced in our Sangha as well. And although there are lots of voices that raise concerns that um, practicing online can never uh, be the same as attending in person, I think it was generally agreed that online teaching is here to stay and by and large uh, has been a great plus. It has allowed us to uh, stay connected and practice together in ways that uh, we never really conceived of uh, before we were first forced to do it. And so part of adapting our teaching to this new reality is getting used to the idea of people being serious students at a distance. It was something Joko uh, uh, certainly was comfortable with and that she had a lot of students who uh, she stayed in touch with regularly by telephone. And those people, when they could, would travel out to San Diego for Sashin, but their relationship with her wasn't confined to when they could manage to be there in person. And so we're just doing, in a way, a much more 
extensive uh, and sophisticated version of uh, what she did back then on the phone. So now we're getting used to the idea that someone can be a serious and committed member of the Sangha even if I never meet them in person. And those people may even be, <coughs> be able to participate in ceremonies like Jukai as signs of their seriousness and commitment even at a distance. And so we're all thinking about how to work that out, what forms it should take, but that reality seems to be something that more and more groups are starting to accept. It's very uh, fitting that we're now reading uh, selected talks by Kyogen Carlson because Kyogen was uh, instrumental in the founding of LZTA uh, 13 years ago. Even though he trained for many, many years as uh, a strict monastic under uh, G.U. Kennett at Shasta Abbey in California. When he came to establish his own center in Portland, very early on he decided he wanted it to be a community, not a monastery. And he was one of the first teachers to give um, full Dharma transmission uh, to lay students. I believe he always had a special fondness for Dogen's fourth generation successor, Kazan. Because if Dogen was the founder of uh, Soto Zen in Japan, practice a austere and ascetic form of uh, monasticism, Keizan was responsible for spreading Soto Zen very widely in Japan and particularly uh, was instrumental in spreading the teaching to women uh, and helping both to uh, establish monastic settings for women but also to support women in their practice uh, in daily life. So Kazan, in a certain way, is a kind of patron saint of lay practice, someone who was very committed to bringing it out of the monastery and into the community. And Kyogen, um, in helping sponsor the idea of a woman's lineage, also uh, it's really very instrumental in our expanding uh, our idea of teaching in lineage. 
lineage is basically a, a Chinese and Japanese uh, idea, uh, this idea of one-to-one -one transmission, teacher to student, in an unbroken line, generation after generation. I don't think that idea existed in Buddha's time or throughout the history of uh, Buddhism in India. It's something that the Chinese went back and sort of imposed on the history to make it look more like what they were doing. And so, just as we expand the idea of what a teacher is, what teaching looks like, we're expanding the whole notion of what lineage means. Uh, and thinking much more in terms of a whole body of cultural influences, uh, teaching in all sorts of forms that goes into our current understanding. And thus down in Philadelphia as part of their service, they chant what they call Walt Whitman's precepts, section from the preface, I believe, of Leaves of Grass. It's an ancestor in the sense of having shaped the way we think. And in a large part, it may be that many lay teachers are not engaged in forms of teaching that are going to generate transmission to another generation of teachers directly. If you work in schools or prisons or other kinds of settings, you might not have uh, what's traditionally recognized as a Dharma successor but you're seeding the whole culture. You're spreading the idea of the Dharma and of practice more and more widely. So there's more and more fertile ground uh, for which students, where students arise. And that, that is also part of this great web of interdependence. See, if we think about our heritage and what has shaped us, it's not a straight line, it's not linear cause and effect. It's a complex web of interaction. That's a very traditional Buddhist idea, if you think in terms of the web of Indra, or the really whole notion of interdependence. It's not linear. But too often, uh, the Chinese and Japanese cultures thought in a very linear fashion, and that was the one form of transmission that really mattered. Well, we could say that our idea of transmission is becoming more and more ecological, right? much more a matter of spreading a way of thinking far and wide. 
And that gives rise to the next generation of students, the next generation of teachers, even if we don't always uh, see a direct connection. forms we use are uh, inevitably hybrid, even though uh, we essentially are a lay center, uh, a big part of what's defined ordinary mind for uh, a long time now has been having a resident having one person here who's able to maintain a six-day-a-week schedule. And I was uh, always been sort of surprised that really how rare that is. Uh, a lot of lay centers, you ask them what's their schedule, they say, well, we meet Wednesday night and Sunday morning, and then we run sessions whenever we can. From the beginning, I tried to set up a schedule where I was sitting every morning and every evening, during all five days a week, and then uh, teaching on Saturday morning. I maintained that for the first decade or so of uh, teaching, and then we established when we were able to get this place. We established a uh, tradition of having a resident who was able to take over and embody a lot of that schedule. And I think that uh, that also is a kind of uh, hybrid experiment that we're doing as part of how do you train the next generation. We. We had uh, there um, a number of um, uh, group uh, activities uh, of one kind or another. Some were sort of formal presentations by one teacher or the others, but we also had ceremonies. Um, one was a, um, they call the uh, heritage ceremony which I helped initiate and ran uh, which involves initiating new members into the organization by a ceremony of uh, uh, receiving the precepts together and that we recognize and reinforce all our horizontal connections the way we support one another uh, and taking the precepts. It's not simply something we receive uh, from, uh, from our teacher, the generation before us. It's something that we reaffirm together. And the other ceremony uh, was the council circle, where for a discussion group, instead of 
a back and forth kind of discussion. Each person in the circle talks in turn, speaking from their own heart or own experience without reference to what anyone else is speaking, saying, no, there's no cross-talk or cross-reference. Just one person after another speaking on a set theme. And I set the theme uh, this year uh, for people to reflect on how they are shaped shapers. How everyone is both the recipient of a tradition and a practice and a context and a lineage. But when we express it and pass it on, we don't simply duplicate what we've received. We take it in, we digest it, we modify it, and we pass it along in a new shape, inevitably. And so we're both guardians of the old and shapers of the new. And everybody's doing that to different degrees, but they're all doing it one way or another. And I think part of what we try to do here as we do this experiment in uh, lay practice is to really take responsibility for both sides of that uh, equation. We want to learn and preserve the old texts, the old, the old forms, what we've received from our teachers so it doesn't die out. That's one kind of responsibility. But another kind is uh, we're not parrots or mimics. We're not just copying something. We're not uh, antiquarians just trying to preserve it in its old form for the next generation. We're trying to understand it and adapt it. Figure out what works in this setting. What do we need to do differently? What do we need to do that's never been done before? That too is a responsibility. I used to say I keep some of the Japanese uh, liturgy as part of our service so it doesn't look like, you know, Zen was invented in Southern California. You know, you want to, we want to know something of our uh, Asian heritage and preserve that. But the texts are translated. The talks are not just on old koans, they're on psychology and philosophy and what's going on in our lives now. We always look in two directions, back and forward. And it's not just me doing that, it's up to you all as well. <laughs>